0: Today, fetal images are ubiquitous. We encounter them everywhere, from family scrapbooks to car advertisements. Frequently, they are intended to send a political message, on billboards protesting legal abortion, for instance, but their pervasive presence is a recent phenomenon. A century ago, most people had no clear idea what a fetus might look like. Still, the fetus has long captured the imagination of scientists and the public. And for more than a century, it has been an object of political controversy. Sarah Dubow, our guest today, eloquently illustrates how central a role the fetus has played over the past 150 years by following the history of the fetus from the late 19th century to the present. Listen as Sarah tells us about her new book, Ourselves Unborn. Today we're going to talk to Sarah Dubow who is the author of Ourselves Unborn, A History of the Fetus in Modern America, published by Oxford University Press in 2011. Sarah is an associate professor for history at Williams College, and her book, Ourselves Unborn, was honored in 2011 with a Bancroft Prize from Columbia University. I love this book. I devoured it immediately when I discovered it right after its publication. Welcome, Sarah. It's a pleasure to talk to you this morning.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: You are so welcome.
1: So I wonder whether we could start um, by
0: you telling us a little bit about how you got to this project and how you got to write this book in the first place.
1: Sure. Sure. You know, I don't really have that seamless of narrative of, of how I got here, but I was in graduate school at Rutgers, and when I went to Rutgers, I lived in New York City, and I was commuting every day um, on New Jersey Transit um, from New York to New Brunswick, and I kept passing by, I think it was like in Elizabeth, New Jersey, there was this big billboard. This was in the late 90s. And there was a big billboard that had sort of a sonogram image of a fetus sucking its thumb. And it was sort of surrounded by these smoke rings. And the caption read something like, you know, don't smoke, take care of your unborn child. Or it didn't say exactly that, but something like that.
0: Yeah.
1: And so every day I would pass that. And then that same year, so I think it must have been 97, I was also reading the Times every morning as I took the train and was reading lots and lots of stories um, about um, sort of arrests of women for prenatal drug abuse or for fetal abuse, for uh, fetal neglect. And one in particular was about Cornelia Whitner, who had been charged with child neglect after her baby was born with traces of cocaine. And I read a story about... Um, South Carolina upholding her conviction and the Attorney General of South Carolina was sort of talking about how it was a great day because um, the the unborn, or now the child, but the unborn had been a citizen and a South Carolinian, which mm-hmm. just sort of seemed odd to me, the language mm-hmm. of it. And then I remember also reading about um, the murder of um, an abortion provider named Barnett Slepian in upstate New York. So these right. were all sort of in the same fall that I was trying to come up with a dissertation topic and writing a seminar paper, and so I decided to sort of think about how all of these three things went together. So there's this sort of public health message about a fetus. um, There's this criminal charge and and sort of the violence of abortion politics in the 90s were all coming together and I really wanted to historicize that. So I wrote one seminar paper and that was really looking at the sites at the 1970s and 1980s sort of in the immediate aftermath of Roe and looking at fetal protection policies where corporations had begun implementing policies that would either require women to get sterilized or would not hire them at all for jobs that would expose them to um, dangerous chemicals um, that could hurt their own, even if they weren't pregnant, but that could possibly hurt their unborn children. Yeah. Um, and so I wrote about it in the 70s and in everything I was researching, there were all of these references to these cases, uh, to a particular case in 1884. And I just kind of put it in a footnote And then I began thinking, well, you know, there is a much longer story here about how um, the unborn, the sort of discourses around the unborn have changed over time. And so that's sort of where the dissertation came. Um, And the dissertation is pretty much the book. You know, I found
0: this really interesting because the next thing I was going to ask you, and I think you have already started hinting at that, is, if you I suspected that you started with the story in the nineteen seventies or somewhere around yeah. then, um but of course, your book starts in the eighteen seventies mm-hmm. and so what was it that made you decide that this was the logical point or one of the logical points that would mm-hmm. allow you a good starting point for this analysis? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, a couple of things. One was that in the legal decisions that I was reading about the fetal protection policies, there was always just a footnote that referred to this 1884 case from Northampton. It was a tort case. Um, It was a state Supreme Court case, and it was a case where... um, a woman had fallen, I'm not going to get the details exactly right, but a woman had fallen on a street in Northampton, Massachusetts, she was pregnant, and she lost the baby and she sued the state for Mm -hmm. sort of wrongful life, and and Oliver Wendell Holmes at the time was the Supreme Court Justice of the State Supreme Court in Massachusetts, and he said, you know, the fetus and the mother are not separable, so there is no damage to a Mm -hmm. separate person. And so then I began, and I had lived in Northampton for a while, and I knew that street, so I began sort of just researching that case exactly and I knew mm-hmm. exactly where it had happened.
0: And
1: mm-hmm. I actually couldn't find that much on it. But um, when I was researching that case and reading about sort of Northampton, Massachusetts in the 1880s, I also was beginning to learn a lot about sort of the criminalization of abortion in the late 19th century. And mm-hmm. a lot had come out um, sort of at the time that I was in graduate school about the history. I mean, the fetus kind of became a topic in the 1990s. and Um, I can't remember the date of when Leslie Reagan's book came out um, of when abortion was a crime. But I think it was sometime around then. Yeah. Um, And so I think that it was just sort of being part of that conversation about the criminalization of abortion. And I knew I didn't want my book to be a history of abortion, per se. But I also knew that that's where the conversation was going to begin for them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. That makes good sense. So In the first chapter, you tell us the story, which I just love, about Friedrich, Friedrich Siegler, the German artist-scientist who was famous for his wax models of embryos. Um, can you tell us about the story, what Ziegler did, and what was significant about his work? I realize that's kind of starting in the middle of chapter one, but I find this image of these wax models so incredibly evocative.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, he, um, I mean, these, mo- these wax, um, models were shown at the 1893 Columbia Exposition. Um, and so there was sort of a first moment where people began seeing, um, what an embryo looked like or what a fetus looked like. Um, and I was just really struck by how much effort was going into, um, telling the story and kind of mm-hmm. recreating, um, pr- uh, visual representation of prenatal life um, in plast you know, in plasticine, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just thinking about sort of his approach to it and what he wanted to communicate and then also imagining what people would have thought about it when they saw it um, mm-hmm. and what kind of context that they put it in is sort of was it comparable to seeing animals um, develop was sort of part mm-hmm. of his story um, and how it did it fit into the ways that people were thinking about evolution um, at the time, and why did he even think this was important? And I didn't find out that much, actually, about him. Mm-hmm. But what I was really interested in was just that this would be a time where people could could actually see this for the first mm-hmm. time. Um, did you get
0: a sense of, I mean, did he model um, his wax models after fetuses uh, that were the result of miscarriages?
1: I actually don't know the answer to that, but Nick, um, Nicholas Hiss? Is that a Nicholas forgetting the name of somebody who's at Cambridge is writing a book about him now I will
0: about a book about Ziegler about
1: Ziegler yeah
0: oh how fascinating yeah okay
1: actually don't know that much okay
0: it doesn't matter
1: um
0: and uh do you have a sense of how people perceived of these models um when they saw them in this exhibit in which context were they exhibited
1: they were in a science, um, panel, um, that was sort of about evolution, actually, and about sort of the future and the past. And they were kind of, um, you know, I talk in the book about this ex, about the 1893 exposition and about the different ways that people could have confronted, um, or experienced arguments about prenatal life. And one of them was at this exhibit, but there were other places throughout the fair that, um, people were talking about, um, sort of prenatal culture, um, Mm -hmm. in a variety of different ways. And so I was really struck by the confluence of those conversations so that in one sort of, you could have been in this kind of hall of science moment where you were looking at these very scientific specimens. And then you also could have just gone to a, um, you know, to a lecture about the influence Mm -hmm. of maternal impressions on prenatal life and how much that mattered. And that was Mm -hmm. all sort of part of one conversation. And so I don't, I don't know how people reacted or interpreted that, but I know that when I read sort of the catalog of the fair or the newspaper coverage of the fair, it was totally normalized. I mean, it wasn't sort of a shocking, I mean, it was an exciting and interesting um, exhibition to go Mm -hmm. to, but it wasn't controversial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just liked the idea of these multiplicities of conversations going out about going on at the same time as each other that were very different. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah
0: that makes sense. Um, how else did people think about the fetus and represent the fetus in the late 19th century or early 20th? Mm-hmm. You mentioned, for instance, the autobiography of an unborn mm-hmm. infant, which I also find really interesting because, of course, this whole idea of narrating the fetus is so mm-hmm. much part of the anti-abortion movement. But I'm sure that it means something very different mm-hmm. today than it did a um, hundred, you know, 50 years ago.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think what I was struck by is how, um I mean, so on the one hand, you have a growing movement of physicians who are trying to criminalize abortion. Yes. And one of the sets of arguments that they make about that is about fetal life and the origins of fetal life and that this is something that re- that is protection. And they want to sort of reclaim um the ability to identify when life begins from the pregnant woman. So, you mm-hmm. know, up until then, it had been this idea that you know, fetal life really began at the moment of quickening, which was sort of Mm -hmm. in the fourth or fifth month, and it was really determined by a woman's experience. Mm -hmm. And in the late 19th century, as um, the American Medical Association and and local and state groups of physicians were trying to pass state laws criminalizing abortion, um, they would increasingly sort of deploy new scientific evidence um, that they were getting from embryologists or from medical textbooks um, about sort of when fetal life began and that they were – Using these in sort of the name of of criminalizing abortions, you had that whole set of conversations, which was not at the fair at all, and wasn't particularly seeping into the ways that people were living their daily lives. I mean, certainly, um, you know, one of the things that you can see when you read these medical journals is how frustrated the doctors are that it's not sinking in to people mm-hmm. that they are right, um, mm-hmm. and that you know the numbers of abortions are not declining, and that when that their women patients aren't particularly receptive to this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, you know, that's one sort of area. And then you have this kind of this case that I talked about in Northampton, which is very clearly um, a legal decision that says, you know, these um, two entities, a mother and a fetus are not separable mm-hmm. um, are not legally divisible. Mm-hmm. So you have kind of a disconnect between the law and the, and what medicine is doing. And then you also have sort of in popular culture, I mean, I, I think the fetus is really, in some ways, very metaphorical, um, for a lot of people. So for Armini, Armini Lamson, who is the author of The Autobiography of the Unborn, um, she is, um, a nurse, um, and she is, she went to medical school for a couple of years and she runs a prenatal healthcare clinic. Mm-hmm. And she writes this kind of fascinating story about prenatal development, um, where the fetus is, experiencing it himself. The unborn Mm -hmm. is sort of telling the story, but she really uses it to comment on a lot of public issues and a Mm -hmm. a lot of um, making sort of public health arguments about women who should, you know, women should take care of themselves and they should Mm -hmm. eat well and they need to sleep well and they need to make sure that they're getting enough rest. Mm -hmm. Um, But also there are kind of, she inserts throughout the text sort of moments where the fetus is like, well, you know, I hope I'm going to be a boy because I don't, you know, I don't want to not be able to vote. <laughs> um, no, that's so, so interesting. sort of like this <laughs> meta commentary on yeah. uh, co- contemporary politics in a, yeah. way, in a way. So um, I think what I was struck by in the late 19th and early 20th century is how useful the fetus was in a variety of different capacities. Yeah. Um, but that there wasn't actually one unified story or even right. one unified political, political debate, and it certainly isn't politicized um, in the sense of, I mean, it's politicized in the sense of, you know, it intersects with debates about um, immigration, for example. So there's a huge concern about um, sort of race suicide and that, um, you know, the new immigrants are having too many babies and that white Protestant women are not having enough babies. And so there's a concern about it in that sense. That's political. Yeah. But um, it's not. Partisan um, in the way yeah. that it becomes
0: That it becomes later. Yeah, yeah, it's politicized in the sense that people like the author of the autobiography Can make policy recommendations such as women should be able to vote, but it's right. not politicized in the way it is today
1: Right
0: exactly. Yeah, so this is really interesting. So we have this creation of a biographical life and we have these images that emerge. And then scientists also begin to create a biological life of the mm-hmm. fetus. What do they talk about during this this half a century that you cover in mm-hmm. the first chapter?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, part of it is just really trying to figure out what is happening um, in in utero, what happens in fetal development. So embryologists are really... Um, collecting fetuses from around the country I mean I think by around 1940 the Carnegie Institute of Embryology has you know 9,000 specimens um, of fetuses at different stages of development so um, part of it is just really trying to figure out um, developmentally um, and physiologically um, what happens at at different days at different weeks Um, Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the that's kind of what's happening in the medical world um, or in, in the scientific world. I mean at the same time again for you have efforts to um, to um, implement sort of prenatal health programs so there's an increasing awareness that there are things that pregnant women can do to make their pregnancies healthier and their babies healthier. So that's another sort of category of medical work that's going on. And then there's the anti-abortion movement, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that really is very successful actually by the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. But in the Middle of the 20th century, I mean, the real science is going on. That's going on is less trying to figure out. Um, I mean, there's not an effort to sort of intervene in any way, the way that we have today. But mm-hmm. there are efforts to just figure out, you know, what happens at week one, what happens at week two, what happens at week three, um, and um, you know, to study it. I mean, they're collecting them. I mean, there's this whole sort of industry of collecting aborted fetuses um and sending them to each other and um you know studying them and getting specimens from them and really sort mm-hmm. of studying you know like day by day what happened and, and particularly what you know what went wrong. I mean most mm-hmm. of the fetuses that they have um come from miscarriages most likely. Some come mm-hmm. from from um abortions and so um so that that's the main science that's going on.
0: Um and um When you compare the image of the fetus uh, in the 1870s to the image of the fetus in the 1920s, you talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. how the fetus by that time has changed from a blank slate to this image of this emerging independent being. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you explain that and talk a little bit about what Mm -hmm. the implications for policy are by the time we have seen this shift that seems very important?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is how, um, late in some ways the significance of those, of those medical discoveries become politicized or become sort of part of policy. I mean, so it's yeah. definitely true that from the ni- 1890s to the 1920s, 1930s, there's this huge, really revolutionary, um, increase in knowledge about prenatal development and in embryology. I mean, embryology really professionalizes over the course of those decades. Um, and, you know, it but it is not true that that medical knowledge um, is totally reflected, certainly in legal recognition of the fetus mm-hmm. or in the politicization of what that should mean and what the implications of that would be for regulating motherhood mm-hmm. or regulating pregnancy. So there's not... um sort of a one-to-one relationship with sort of identifying and recognizing fetal life um, and fetal independence with um, recognizing fetal rights um, mm-hmm. and fetal personhood in some sense. Mm-hmm. So those are sort of two different stories. And the first story I tell is definitely about kind of discovering fetal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that at different points in time, different markers be- kind of the moment that people identify as the beginning of life. So sometimes, it beca- you know, sometimes when you're reading medical textbooks, it becomes really important, you know, when they can find a heartbeat or when mm-hmm. they can, when the lungs become um, capable of sustaining life. Mm-hmm. Um, and viability isn't necessarily the language they use, and it's not used in the context of, you know, what does this mean? Like, you know, mm-hmm. what does this mean regu- in terms of regulations or in terms mm-hmm. of policy? Um, so, you know, I think the story until really, you know, until the 1920s, 30s is really a story of discovery, um, and investigation. And then mm-hmm. sort of in the 40s to the 60s, um, there are, Increased, I mean, it's, again, still not as politicized. I mean, there are, and this is when there's a lot of research going on about um, fertility mm-hmm. um, and controlling fertility and studying, you know, and development of the pill and development of contraception sort of in the 40s, 50s, 60s, all of that mm-hmm. research is going on. Um, but again, it's still not part of our partisan political culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's something that happens much, much later, beginning in the late six, in the 60s, 70s.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, what I find really poignant is uh, when you discuss the discovery of fetal life in chapter one, Mm -hmm. um, and then we get into the 1930s, and the very first thing you start with there is the 1933 century of Mm -hmm. progress for the World Fair, where the real thing is displayed. We're no longer dealing with wax models. It's a little bit like the logical conclusion now we have discovered the fetus. Now we can display it in this world's fair. Yeah. So talk a little bit about how this happened and what the differences are between the way in which people perceive it mm-hmm. um, when they look at Ziegler and the way in which they now mm-hmm. perceive it as we are in this century of progress for the world's fair.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's. In, I mean, it's. You know, it's both very similar, obviously, to the, to the 93 fair, and also different. So. Because it is real, um, yeah. but again, it's like the 93 fair. The 33 fair kind of has multiple sites where people are going to be, could confront the unborn. So you have um, you have these kind of very scientific cases, uh, uh, you know, in a hall of science where you can see fetuses in jars of formaldehyde at different stages of development. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're very, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, they're not... Um, they're very scientific and they're very um, sort of honored. I mean, they're mm-hmm. seen as very special, mm-hmm. um, but you also have kind of a freak show um, mm-hmm. sort of on the other side of the fair where people can go and look at kind of weird babies in bottles that are deformed fetuses. Hmm. And so, again, I don't have evidence of people who are writing about their experiences of what that was like. But again, it's just sort of impossible to imagine that happening today. I mean, we I mean, in, in that confluence that it would be fine to have both. Um, and that both are incredibly popular. They're both really widely seen exhibits at this fair.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then after the, it's one of the most popular ones. And then after the fair closes, the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago decides that they're going to make that a permanent exhibit, which huh. is still there. I don't know if you've ever. I I have to go and see it. Yeah, you do have to. They're still there. I don't think they're the same specimens, Uh but it's interesting because when you walk into it now, um, again, there's this kind of quiet. It's it's a little bit off of the main floor. Like you have to. I don't think you need. I don't think there's a sign warning children about it, but it is kind of a separate space where you go into. And again, it's very honored and special. Yeah. Um, and there's a sign that says, um, you know, talks about where, where these fetuses came from. Um, and that they weren't, um, abortions that, you know, they weren't, um, selective abortions, uh, that people had just chosen to do. They were, you know, medical. They, they right. had to be aborted. So, I mean, it's interesting to see that difference, which is there today. Yeah. Um, and even in the exhibit at the 33 Fair and then what becomes the exhibit in the science and museum industry or the Museum of Science and Industry, um, they really use, I mean, in the exhibit, they use the story of fetal development in very specific ways targeted towards boys and girls. So there's a there are a lot of children's books that come out at the same time as the museum exhibit And uh-huh. they talk about what girls are going to feel as they walk through it, and this is how you're going to be a mother, and this is going to happen to your body someday, um, and talk about it differently for boys. So it also becomes sort of a vehicle for inculcating prospective parents um, in their appropriate gender reactions to it.
0: And this is specifically guiding them through this exhibit.
1: Yeah, it's a children's book that How goes with the exhibit. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Huh. Um, so basically what we have then is an explosion of images mm-hmm. of the fetus. So you talk about photographs of human embryos from the 1940s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Um you know, when we see, again, and I'm sorry I always make that comparison, but I want to highlight how different the meaning was. So when we see photographs of human embryos today, we have a certain way in which we understand them, yeah. but clearly that was not the way in which people in the 1940s and 50s, mm-hmm. when these first photographs came out, understood them. So in what context were they taken and mm-hmm. what were they supposed to convey?
1: I mean, I think in some ways with it, I mean, so in the 40s and 50s, you do have pictures for the first time in Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine and women's magazines, um, that are showing in utero life. And I think yeah. they're really, um, supposed to demonstrate sort of the amazement of science. Like, what can science do? I mean, it's yeah. so unbelievable that we can see this and that we can, and in some ways, it's less about, the fetus than it is about the doctors. Um yeah. and sort of celebrating yeah. their capacity to do this. Yeah. Um and the you know, they're most I mean they begin to emerge sort of in the thirties and forties. These images are in Science magazine and Nature magazine and then they move into sort of more popular magazines. But again, they're not they're not connected to a larger political problem I mean so mm-hmm. abortion isn't part of this discussion at all um, mm-hmm. in the, in these journals. I mean abortion at this point is essentially illegal
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, so it's not um, you know they're they're always in the science section not in the politics section um of all of these magazines and they're really just sort of snapshots they're not big articles, they would be snapshots of a oh look, we can see a forty one year old a forty one day old mm-hmm. here we go this is mm-hmm. what it looks like um, mm-hmm. this is what scientists are doing
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and you know there's a lot of them so i mean you can imagine that if you're living in the 30s and 40s you might go to this exhibit at the museum you might have been at the world's fair um you might um you know be turning the newspaper and seeing this article that has a picture so it's just becoming an increasingly present um visual presence in people's lives like they're increasingly aware of what it what it is mm-hmm. um and at the same time you're also seeing in the 40s, in particular, 40s and 50s, the emergence of kind of a science of prenatal psychology, which kind of mm-hmm. picks up on a lot of the maternal impressions debates of the late 19th century, but are really sort of talking about, I mean, often the way that you talk about, um, prenatal development is in terms of prescriptions for what the pregnant woman should be doing and thinking, mm-hmm. um, and its implications for prenatal development. So in the 40s and 50s, there's a, a significant amount of discussion about sort of the problem of, um, neurotic men Mm -hmm. Um, and there's some attribution of this to stressed out pregnant women Um, Mm -hmm. and so you know whatever so that's another kind of narrative that begins to emerge in the 40s and 50s is um, you know that women need to be calm they need to be relaxed um, they need to um, you know again eat well sleep well all of that but Mm -hmm. um, you know in sort of the context of post-world war ii when so many women are going back into the home from working um, it sort of takes on a particular valence um, mm-hmm. that's a little
0: yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah, you talk about um, how researchers in the 1940s begin to ask what the embryo does rather mm-hmm. than just explore what happens to it during the nine months of gestation, which, of course, is a very interesting shift in emphasis. Mm-hmm. Um, so who became interested in the embryo that way and what did they find when they mm-hmm. started talking? What kind of questions did they ask?
1: Well, there are a couple of places where this is happening. I mean, part of it is that it, um, gets connected to the emergence of child development as a discipline. And so, Arnold Gessel, who's one of the leading child developed theorists, um, I think at the time he's at Yale, Um, include sort of prenatal development in his child development psychology theory. And he's, and then there's also this institute in Antioch, Ohio called, um, or Yellow Springs, Ohio called the Samuel Feld Institute that's really dedicated to studying fetal life. And they talk about well what we really want to know is what does the fetus think? What does the fetus mm-hmm. do every day? What does the <laughs> fetus feel? Um, you know, so it's not again so much, you know, what cells develop at what point in time and what function what physiological functions develop. It's this very emotional yeah. um interpretation. And you know, I don't know what they could I mean, they don't really actually reach tremendous conclusions. It's not yeah. clear what the fetus does, feels or thinks. But yeah. it's just interesting that those become sort of the pressing questions, questions. Yeah. Um, to them, that there's this whole institute set up to, to study it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really that's uh-huh. really fascinating. So what implications do does this new set of questions and mm-hmm. findings or not findings, depending on how successful they are, uh-huh. have for pregnant women and their responsibility to the fetus okay. as we move into mid-century.
1: Well, there's an increasing sense um, that, I mean, there's both kind of a desire to kind of reject this pre-modern idea that, you know, if a pregnant woman gets scared by a bear, her baby might, you know, look have a lot of fur like a bear or something. Right. right? So that's like this old there's an effort to really distance themselves from that yeah. but there's also um sort of this modern iteration of of maternal impressions in the sense of um that the woman's emotions are really going to have an impact on fetal development and yeah. as you know as i said it really um there's a lot of talk about sort of psychological development and emotional development less and less in some ways a little bit less on the physical um and i think one of the things that i really want to make clear in in the book or what I was hoping to make clear is that, um, you know, the whole set of concerns that people have about whatever it is at the particular moment in time that they're living in, those are going to get ascribed and attributed to the fetus. Mm -hmm. So if in the forties and fifties, there, there are a lot of anxieties about, you know, this, you know, should women be working, you know, what's going to happen after the war? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, is there this sort of emerging kind of proto, feminist movement, I mean, all of those anxieties get kind of attributed to um, the fetus, and so there's a lot of talk in women's magazines or in prescriptive literature um, about, you know, how much sleep, how much rest um, a woman should get, um, how she should control the way that she's thinking, because, you know, you definitely do not want a neurotic baby, um, and neuroses becomes this kind of obsession, um, and, you know, there are a lot of articles about sort of neurotic mothers producing neurotic children mm-hmm. uh, or neurotic pregnant women producing neurotic babies. Um, and so I think that, you know, whatever the, I guess it's sort of a simple point, but my point is really just that whatever anxieties you sort of, you see in a variety of different contexts, mm-hmm. of society of they're they're going to get articulated and expressed onto this maternal fetal relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, did you find that um, prior to the legalization of abortion, Mm -hmm. that these scientific findings and uh, these shifting perceptions of the 40s and 50s and anxieties have Mm -hmm. an impact on the law, or does the law Mm -hmm. still remain where it is earlier? Well, you begin
1: to see in the 40s, um, for the first time you do see a recognition of prenatal life, first in the context of tort law. So tort law is sort of like when something wrong happens to you and you can make a claim against somebody. Right. So there's a case in 1946 where um a woman delivers and her this is a 1946 case and she dies but um her baby is damaged. And so mm-hmm. there's a, a prenatal tort case for in utero damage. Uh, through the delivery process. And in that case, for the first time, prenatal life is recognized mm-hmm. and they, that explicitly overturns the 1884 case that I talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is and, and then there's a series of cases, states across the country, I think by 1960, around 18 or 20 cases have been found to identify um, prenatal life. Um, to recognize it legally, either in the context of tort law or property law or family law, Um, again, not in abortion law um, or constitutional law, but um, sort of in claims that families are making um, for damage that's been done to their babies in utero. Right. Um, And so there is a shift and there is also in, in all of these laws or all of these cases, there's they increasingly turn to science to support them. So whereas in the late 19th century, there's just sort of been two totally different narratives in law and medicine. In the 40s and 50s, there becomes kind of a confluence of them. So as fetal life is increasingly recognized and identified and um, valued um, medically, it's also kind of recognized and valued legally, mm-hmm. um, sort of pre-abortion. Mm-hmm.
0: Um- And then we get to 73 and the legalization of abortion, Uh and suddenly the fetus becomes politicized in a way that it has never been before.
1: Uh Uh And
0: one of the things that you discuss at length in that chapter, which I just find really fascinating, is the Kenneth Adeline trial. Uh Um, So talk a little bit about who Adeline was and what we learn about legal abortion and the fetus through an analysis of the Uh trial.
1: Well, Kenneth Edelon was a chief resident at Boston City Hospital in 1973. He was the first African-American resident there. Um, And he was an obstetrician um, and gynecologist. And he was one of only two doctors. So he came in 1973. Roe was decided in January of 1973. And at that point, um, you know, there are no sort of abortion laws on the books in Massachusetts. So abortion is... For all intents and purposes, legal everywhere in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there is um, at the time a, a clause that allows doctors who have moral objections or religious objections not to perform abortions. And Edelyn is one of only two doctors at Boston City Hospital who will perform them. Um, and beginning in. February of 73, um just the number of patients who are coming to Boston City Hospital to get abortions goes up dramatically. So I think they're performing at some point 18 to 20, 18 to 30 a week is sort of the estimate that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Boston City Hospital is a public hospital um in Boston, and it's a hospital that serves largely African American and immigrant patients from sort of down Roxbury area in Boston. Mm-hmm. And most of the, or many of the nurses who work there are, um, Catholic, Irish Catholic nurses who are coming from Charleston. And one of the things that I discovered, in, and it, so a woman, a girl comes to Boston City Hospital, um, she's 17 years old, um, she is West Indian immigrant, and she's pregnant, and she wants an abortion. And, um, Kenneth England performs the abortion, and, it's not clear. It's a. It's pretty late. It's not clear exactly. Even reading the transcripts of the event, what there's a debate about. Is she 20 weeks pregnant? Is she 21 weeks? 22 weeks? There's a, there's not clarity on that. On yeah. um, Parts of the different doctors. There's disagreement about it. But he performs the abortion, um, and she's fine. Um, goes home. is fine. Um, and what happens then is that at the same time that um, that this was happening, there was also a study going on at Boston City Hospital on um, it was sort of a, a study on different kinds of um, antibiotics mm-hmm. and they were giving two different the, the um, researchers were giving two different kinds of antibiotics to pregnant women who were planning on having abortions so these mm-hmm. were women who knew who were pregnant they knew they wanted to have abortions and doctors were trying to figure out whether penicillin or clindamycin would be a better um, antibiotic for a pregnant woman to take which would mm-hmm. be less um, which would have less impact on the fetus mm-hmm. And so as they were doing this research, um, somebody reported um th- there was a whole sort of at this point, there's already kind of a national debate about fetal research, actually, mm-hmm. in Congress um, in 1973. Um, and at that point in time, somebody, uh, the journal article that gave the results of the study came out in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it's a really very not mundane, it's an important study, but it's a very scientific study, that um, you know, about sort of the differential impact of these two antibiotics. It comes out in the New England Journal, but it comes out, you know, right at the time in June of 73, where abortion is sort of a national story. And the idea of doing fetal research kind of in in the context of Boston, it gets reported to the Boston City Council, and it gets reported um, to different sort of political organizations and social movements in Boston. And um, Boston... Um, city council decides to hold hearings on these, um, on fetal research. And so they hold hearings on it, and through these hearings, it comes to their knowledge that, um, you know, the one of the aborted, I don't think this, I don't think that the woman who Edelin performed the abortion on, I don't think her fetus was used in this research. The timing Mm -hmm. isn't, they don't overlap. But the story of this abortion that Edelin had performed comes up, and a woman reports that you know, there are these fetuses in bottles in the basement um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the morgue at Boston City Hospital. What are they? Mm-hmm. And Newman Flanagan, who's the attorney general in Boston, goes to investigate. And they ultimately, so they find this this aborted fetus from the woman that Edelin had performed the abortion on, and they charge him with manslaughter. Mm-hmm. Um And so there's a a trial that sort of takes over Boston for a year, and he's ultimately convicted of manslaughter, and then ultimately two years later, the Supreme Court of Massachusetts will overturn that conviction. And the trial is really about, I mean, it's about a lot of different things, but, I mean, one of the things that they're sort of trying to figure out on both sides is, you know, was there even a victim? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So was this a person? Was this a baby? Was this Mm -hmm. a fetus? Was it a boy? Was it a person as are there rights? Um, you know, we know that abortion is legal. Um, but, you know, at what point did this fetus baby boy die? I mean, did mm-hmm. he die in utero, In mm-hmm. which case maybe it was an abortion was, he, you know, was the head out? I mean, it's a very, um, detailed debate about kind of this process of this particular, it was because it was a later abortion, he had performed a hysterotomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a very, um, I don't want to texture. It isn't quite the right word. But I mean, there were there was a lot at stake in figuring out exactly the moment at which the fetus had died and Mm -hmm. and how. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of the things that happens in the trial is that the jurors are shown images of fetuses um, and uh, of this one. Mm -hmm. And that in their narrative, at least when they start talking afterwards about why they ultimately convicted him, they are very persuaded by these images, I mean you know, they're saying you know that's a baby mm-hmm. um, and um you know the other sort of element of the story is the context in which it's happening in Boston because it's at the same time as the busing crisis this is in seventy four and seventy five that the trial is happening and it's at the same time that the busing crisis is happening, and one of the things that I found in my research that I hadn't really thought about before was how much overlap there was in Boston between the anti-bussing activists and the anti-abortion activists Mm -hmm. and just how racialized um, this conflict became. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's what that story uh, is really about. And, you know, I mean, the reality is that, I mean, it has obviously a lot of messages for today because, you know, this woman who went to Edelin, you know, she was an immigrant. She was young. Um, she actually did go with her mother, so her mother did support her decision, but she went to this public hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she did not have a lot of resources or options mm-hmm. available to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, I think if somebody, you know, a, a richer patient could have secretly had an abortion, you know, so right. the fact that it's legal also kind of makes it more contested in some way because there's nothing secret about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's actually a really interesting parallel. And the other thing that I find brilliant about the chapter is that it takes up these images and narratives and pictures that we have of the Mm -hmm. fetus and makes it clear how the legalization of abortion really removes the, I don't want to say innocence of the depictions, but in a way it does, you know, they Mm -hmm. suddenly take on meanings that they really did not have before.
1: Mm Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think what's sort of interesting when you read the trial transcript and it's, it's, you know, I... I mean, my sources for that chapter are largely the trial transcript and the newspaper coverage. So I yeah. didn't do oral. I didn't do any oral history for it. But when you read the transcript, there's a lot of educating of and I say educating in quotes because it goes. I mean, there's also a lot of miseducating of the jurors right. that that's going on in there. So it's not obvious that they're coming to this event with. A whole set of preconceptions. Right. Um, but it's definitely clear that they're persuaded by one line of arguments more than the other. And certainly yeah. when they talk about it, um, when they're interviewed after the trial and sort of give their reasons for convicting, um, they definitely were not at all persuaded by the defense's argument. And part of what happens is that, um, you know, the defense brings up a lot of doctors who talk and kind of you know medical professional language that is not resonating with the jurors so there are questions about you know is the baby is the baby alive so there's a whole debate about whether or not they can even use the word baby um and but so you know and so the prosecutor keeps using it even though he's not actually supposed to but so he you know is the baby alive and the doctors say well we don't really use that word um that's not a useful word for us we use you know viable or not viable yeah and to the jurors that's you know, alive is a is a meaningful word. So yeah. there's sort of this conflict between um sort of this professionalized way of talking about it and this sort of affective, emotive response to it. Yeah. Um and it's sort of, you know, it's you know, it's immediately after Rose, so it hasn't yet taken the sort of predictable set piece feeling that we now have to abortion politics. Yeah. I mean, you can see people trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um yeah, so it, it's it's a fascinating case.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the things you argue is that the anti-abortion movement basically erases the distinction between fetuses uh-huh. and children, and certainly Adeline, the Adeline case, illustrates that. Uh-huh. Um, so um, what are the implications for that for pregnant women as we then move into uh-huh. the 70s, 80s, and
1: 90s? Uh-huh. Well... I mean, I guess I would say two things. I mean, yes, they definitely erase that distinction. I don't think that the consequences are inevitable. I think the consequences take shape because that erasure fits in with a political agenda that exists. So, I mean, you Mm -hmm. could have an erasure that works in a different way. um, Mm -hmm. In some ways, that would lead to more prenatal health care, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But what you see is sort of this... Erasure leads to the protection of fetal rights um, and sort of the construction of fetal rights in opposition to women's interests in a variety of contexts. So what happens, you know, beginning in the 70s, um, you know, I and this was sort of, again, my first seminar paper ever was about these fetal protection policies mm-hmm. where companies um, begin to pass um, regulations that either require women between the ages of 15 and 50 to get sterilized in order to work um, in certain jobs at certain companies, or they just don't hire them at all. Um, and you have a lot of language about, you know, coming from sort of the um, companies, well, we would rather, you know, we would rather violate, you know, law than have, a, have an unborn child be exposed to something dangerous. Again, it's sort of this presentation of the corporate interests care more about the unborn than the mother, Mm -hmm. whereas the mother's arguments are, you know, this is a really good paying job. Um, Mm -hmm. And also the argument is, you know, this workplace needs to be safe for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, you have a set of cases. I mean, this chapter looks at sort of three categories of cases where fetal rights are kind of presented in opposition to women's rights. So one are these fetal protection policies, which ultimately the Supreme Court says are not um are unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Um and then you also have um a set of cases where pregnant women um do not want medical interventions. So they either don't want blood transfusions or they don't want caesarean sections and doctors and hospitals get sort of um ad litem protection for the unborn and, and um require and sort of get laws to require women to undergo medical procedures against their will. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a, se- so I look at a series of those cases and then you also have kind of an increase in criminalization of pregnant women who use drugs. And mm-hmm. so you have a whole set of, cr- of um, new crimes of fetal neglect and fetal abuse um, mm-hmm. where pregnant women who deliver um, babies, and then the babies are tested for drugs, and if there are drugs in the system, the woman is arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I look at these three categories and sort of think about, you know, why at this moment are I mean, even outside the context of abortion, you know, what are the implications for women of constructing the fetus's legal interests as an in opposition to the, the woman's, and what are the, you know, what are, what are the assumptions or how do we get to a place where we assume that a corporation cares more about the unborn than the mother? Mm-hmm. Um, and how does that play out? So that's sort of a chapter that looks at the 70s and 80s and, and mm-hmm. 90s mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: in terms of fetal rights cases. Um, you conclude
0: your book with an analysis of modern anti-abortion politics, in mm-hmm. particular the claim that the fetus experiences pain during an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um So tell us a little bit about how the anti-abortion movement capitalizes on this point Uh and um, what the consequences of this new field of debate are.
1: Uh Well, this begins, um, I mean, I, I think in some ways it's just a continuation of the recognition of the movement that that emotional argument and those pictures that were in the Edelman trial mattered Um and yeah. they changed the way that people felt. Yeah. Um And I think there's and there's also, I think, an increasing sense on the um anti-abortion movement that it's, you know, it's not working. They haven't passed a human life amendment. You know, abortion mm-hmm. is still legal. Mm-hmm. Um And so I think that there's a sort of strategic Shift, not in the entire, I mean, the movement's very divided, I mean, there are many movements and it's very divided, but there is a strategic shift to sort of limit certain, limit certain procedures, pass restrictions, not go for the whole human life amendment, not get 14th, not get 14th amendment protections, essentially, for unborn life. And, I mean, that sort of culminates, I think, in, I mean, it, well, it culminates today in sort of the, the massive numbers of restrictions that we have,
0: mm-hmm. but,
1: um, What I see happening, I mean, I begin that chapter in 1984 with um, the film The Silent Scream, which was a very sort of evocative and well-known film in the 80s um, that is a film of an abortion procedure and um there it's sort of narrated from the perspective of how much this it's hurting um the fetus um, mm-hmm. as it's being aborted mm-hmm. and that's the silent scream you can see mm-hmm. you can quote see the fetus screaming in pain in this abortion and the pro life movement really picks up on this film it distributes it really broadly ronald reagan talks about it um and this idea of sort of making an argument about fetal life based on this idea, well, a fetus feels pain um, begins to take shape in the 1980s. And it it sort of um, develops over the next 20 years and really culminates um, in debates over the partial partial birth abortion ban act. I mean, there's one set of debates that's happening kind of in medical journals um, about whether or not the fetus can feel pain, what is pain. How would we demonstrate that? How would you know? And I mean, really the medical consensus is no, um, that pain d- depends upon sort of the development of a, of a, cor- of a prefrontal cortex at a certain moment in time and that that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, those medical discussions don't really, I mean, they're not as, they're not that persuasive. And so there's an increasing number of people who are really moved by this argument. Um, And so I sort of talk about kind of the way that science becomes increasingly deployed in, you know, sort of misleading ways in the 80s -hmm. and 90s. Um, And it's not just in terms of fetal pain. I mean, there's also arguments about the link between breast cancer and abortion, Mm -hmm. which are also not scientifically true, but become, you know, really a big part of kind of debates about abortion and also about sort of post-abortion trauma and post-abortion depression disorders. And that, again, there's not really scientific evidence for, but um, I think become part of this strategy um, to sort of reframe anti-abortion arguments as sort of twofold. I mean, one, you have this pain argument about, you know, isn't it, I mean, I, you know, it's awful, like if, if there's pain and then also, um, you know, look, we're doing this to protect the mother because, mm-hmm. you know, it's dangerous to her too.
0: mm mm-hmm. So if you take the Gonzalez versus Carhart mm-hmm. decision, which basically upholds um the ban of the so called um mm-hmm. partial birth abortion procedure, and you look at it as a lens to kind of reflect backwards, what would you say that decision illustrates about the history of the fetus? Well, wow, it's a
1: big question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, oh my- you know, it's such a weird decision to me. Yeah. Um, and I think it, I mean, I think a couple of things. I mean, I think that it definitely speaks to a change, a successful st- change in strategy on the part of the anti-abortion movement. So mm-hmm. I think there is a clear sense, particularly after um, the 1992. 1992 decision in Casey, that Roe is probably not going to be eradicated. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not going to be a Brown versus Board of Education overturns Plessy Mm -hmm. sort of moment for Roe. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's not going to be a human life amendment. And so I think that the 2007 decision is a culmination of, of sort of the recognition of, oh, you know, okay, we can't overturn this, but we can, you know, um, overturn specific procedures, or we mm-hmm. can also pass, you know, a huge array of restrictions at a state level. Um, so there's there's that sort of legal element to it. And I think there's also, um, I think it also speaks to the real success in, you know, in making this a debate over different kinds of emotional responses. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed, to you know, there aren't a lot of constitutional rights that get kind of put on the table for a public referendum on people's emotional responses to them. I mean, so mm-hmm. it, I think it really demonstrates to me how fragile that right is or how mm-hmm. how unaccepted, but that it just has not been fully incorporated as a real mm-hmm. right. It's less of a right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that case makes that clear. And I think it also really. I mean, aside from abortion per se, I think it really speaks to the sort of ways that the Supreme Court in the last 20, you know, the last third of the 20th century really gets um not sucked into this debate, but gets to sort of be a central player mm-hmm. in it. Um, and, you know, like now it would just be unheard of not to have Roe be a crucial question um in confirmation hearings or, mm-hmm. you know, and just sort of the power that that decision gave Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the, the majority opinion. Um And so I think it speaks to sort of the changed court uh, mm-hmm. in some ways more than changed abortion politics. But, mm-hmm. um you know, I definitely think it was a moment of, you know, now when you, you know, it's the 40th anniversary of Roe, so there are all these articles out now kind of evaluating the status of it and and the status of the two movements. And that's definitely, I think, a turning point, that decision. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, As we wind down, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about your new project, which I think just so wonderfully dovetails with Mm. this book that we just discussed?
1: Well, I have to say, I really thought that I was not going to be writing about abortion again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you had the same feeling and then decided to do it again anyway. Um, but when I finished my first book, I thought, you know, I'm kind of done with this. I said what I wanted to. I figured out what I wanted to. Yeah. And then... Um, I think that sort of 2011 happened, and there were all, I mean, my book came out in 2000, at the beginning of 2011. Yeah. That was the year that the most, um, the highest number of abortion restrictions at a state level were ever passed. You know, so I think there were like 92 or close to 100 restrictions were passed at a state level. Yeah. And I think that people had sort of thought that, and I had thought, um, you know, we had the 2008 recession, we've had wars, we've had, you know, like, is abortion really going to be the definitive political debate anymore? Um, And I think that 2011, and sort of, and then the increase in the debates about um, the Affordable Care Act, and kind of the budget debates about abortion and defunding Planned Parenthood, and the contraceptive debates, all just sort of reminded me of what a valuable um, window into people's into into sort of American political culture it is. Mm -hmm. And um in in the Edeling case actually there had been a small I mean one tiny kind of footnote I think it's a footnote in the case was that there was a conscience clause that did allow doctors not to perform abortions um and that nurses actually weren't protected by that in 1983 mm-hmm. um in, in Massachusetts and so when people when the contraceptive mandate aspect of the Affordable Care Act was passed um and people started debating um, and sort of saying, you know, this is a violation of people's right, freedom of religion, and you're forcing people to pay for things that they don't believe in. And then there was a debate about, I mean, there is a conscience clause element to the Affordable Care Act, and there was mm-hmm. debate about whether it went far enough, is it too restrictive? And I remembered this element of the 1973 one. And I thought, you know, when did this even begin? Why aren't Mm -hmm. there these exemptions for doctors? Like there aren't other procedures that doctors get to opt out of. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I began to look into it, um, I sort of found that the first federal restriction that was passed after Roe was a conscience clause. um, And it's the first, it's the first restriction that's passed almost unanimously. And it's a restriction that says that doctors, individual doctors and um, institutions that receive federal funding, um, do not have to perform abortions if they have, or sterilizations if they have moral or religious objections. And it passed, you know, by, uh, you know, one person voted against it in the House and one person voted against it in the Senate. And so I really mm-hmm. began to think, well, how is something that now is producing, you know, 30 lawsuits are pending on this case right now? The Blunt Amendment, which was an amendment which would have, um, allowed anybody, any employer with any moral objections to not pay for certain kinds of health care was passed, was defeated, but it was defeated in a completely partisan vote. Mm -hmm. So I just began thinking, well, maybe thinking about sort of the history of this conscience clause and exemptions for doctors and thinking about why was it so uncontroversial in 1973 and so controversial today mm-hmm. um would be an interesting project. And, mm-hmm. and that, so that's what I'm writing about right now. And I'm not sure where it's going to go. I mean, I think I'm really struck by how the debates in the 1970s about conscience clauses get really tied up in debates about Vietnam mm-hmm. and, and debates about um Watergate actually. And so thinking again about well, how are abortion and so and today's debates are all tied up in the budget. So I'm just mm-hmm. still interested in how does abortion become the sort of proxy for all these mm-hmm. issues.
0: That sounds really fascinating. And I have to say, regardless of where that book goes, I can't wait to read it and to do another interview with you on the next book. Well, <laughs> <Thanks. laughs> so, Sarah, thank you so much for being willing to be on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: We have been talking to Sarah Dubow, author of Ourselves Unborn, A History of the Fetus in Modern America, which came out with Oxford University Press in 2011. I am Johanna Schön, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies. Please join us next time. Thanks for listening.